Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey guys and gals, it's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. I'm here with my friend and fellow Go Abundance member, which we'll get into what that is shortly, uh, Andrew Cushman. And Andrew is a property syndicator, which I think is one of the most misunderstood job titles, way to make money, a way to put money into an investment type things that you'll see on the internet. There's a lot of horror stories that have put their money with uh, property syndicators. There's a lot of people that do this job that don't know what they're doing. I can tell you Andrew's track record is phenomenal. So I'm looking forward to learning from him and learning more about his projects and how he invests other people's money because in uh, full disclosure, I'm thinking about writing him a check for about 50 or $100,000 here in the next couple of weeks. So this was an opportunity for me to bring his story to you and also get uh, get a chance for me to vet him even a little deeper than I already have uh, before I give him a giant check out of my savings account. So Andrew, welcome to the show and let's go right into it. Like what is a property syndicator? What is it What is it that you do to make money for yourself and other people? Well, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so this, so this is li- li- live on air due diligence uh, on your part, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, okay, so a good way to think about syndication is this, um, and, and this, this, this might, this analogy may, may apply better if you take COVID out of the picture, but if you wanted to go on a cruise, right, you are not going to go spend $2 billion to buy the princess of the sea so that you can, you know, um, cart around the Caribbean for two weeks and then come home, right? Rather, what you're going to do is you're going to find somebody else, a cruise ship operator that buys the ship or builds the ship. They're experts at managing it. They're experts at running it. They know where to take the cruise ship, right? And then what they're going to do as the cruise ship operator is they're going to um, think of uh, think of the, anyone going on the cruise as an investor. And all the investors pull their money together, give it to the cruise ship operator, and then the cruise ship operator basically takes over and, and does everything else. And what happens is, each of those people who spent you know a few thousand dollars or whatever on the cruise gets the benefits of that cruise ship that they would not be able to get on their own. They get the benefits of the operator saying, "Oh, hey, these are the places that we're going to go." Uh, oh, and by the way, we've set up all these opportunities that you can experience these tours and these places and all that. And so the each person who's going, and which is basically kind of like an investor, gets all these benefits that they could not get on their own. The cruise ship operator gets the benefit of, if they do a good job, having an asset that produces an income stream for, for their business, right? So it's not a perfect analogy, but that's the way to look at it. It's, is, is, you know, as a, what a syndicator is doing is pooling together other people's money so that those people can get access to investments they otherwise wouldn't be able to get access to. And in the, the sponsor or the syndicator's case, in many cases, they're able to buy an asset that they otherwise wouldn't be able to, to purchase. So, for example, we closed one in March that was, you know, uh, it was a $49.8 million deal. I cannot buy that personally on my wait, own wait, balance. Let's not, gloss, let's not gloss over that. You guys bought a deal in March that was $49.5 million? Uh, 49.8. Yeah. And what, what was that? What did you buy for, we'll call it 50 million. I, I think at that, at that level you can round. What, what did you, what, what were you responsible for buying for $50 million? Uh, it was 252 units, average year construction, t- 2011 in Fort Walton beach, Florida. So, uh, it was a, uh, a minus property that had a lot of upside in a very strong and rapidly growing market. 
Um, and, you know, so that it's just a, a great medium and long-term investment. And again, something I couldn't buy by myself. None of our investors could buy it by themselves. But if we pool our efforts and funds, we can, we can buy it and then we can all benefit. So that's what syndication is. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people are who are probably watching this work in the mortgage or real estate space because that's probably where I have influence. And so I, I just want to do a little thought experiment of like, if you're buying my neighbor's house, okay, and you're buying it for $500,000 and you're paying $600 for an appraisal and you're putting $100,000 down and, you know, that's kind of the scale of what a lot of people think about when they think about doing property investment. You pay 600 bucks for the appraisal, maybe a total of $10,000 in closing costs and you buy this place, you put a hundred grand down, you put a tenant in there for three grand, four grand, maybe you make some money. Can you explain, just extrapolate that out to the scale of a $50 million property? Like how much money are you putting down? How much money is out of pocket to um, to obtain that property on closing costs? I'm guessing an appraisal doesn't cost 600 bucks on a 250 unit building. Like <laughs> no, <it> does not. <laughs> uh, how, how does this scale up? Because like you said, really, unless you're Warren Buffett, the only way you can think to purchase these things is if you get into a syndicate and me and you and David and Mike and everybody pool our money. And then it's like, all right, we got the whatever you're going to tell me, 10 million or 20 million to buy it. Um, can you just talk about the scale of closing on a $50 million property? Yeah, you've got to add a bunch of zeros to all the numbers that you just mentioned, right? So we just applied for a loan a couple of weeks ago. The loan application fee was $75,000. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 what? 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 Yeah, that's that's the fee just to start the loan, not not to guarantee you get it. Just to apply for the loan is a seventy five thousand dollars fee that you're not going to get back. By the way, if they decide to not give you the loan. Whew. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, and then on. Let's see, I'm trying to think. Our earnest money, our deposit. Oh yeah. So on that that deal we talked about earlier, the forty nine point eight. Our deposit on that, our earnest money deposit was five hundred thousand. Um, 250,000 of that was uh, what we call hard day one, meaning it's non-refundable no matter what, uh, you know, unless exceptions for fraud or environmental or something like that. Right. But basically, you know, we can't just be like, Hey, we changed our mind. And if we did, the guy seller would keep 250 grand. Right. Um, yeah. You know, appraisals can be, you know, uh, surveys and appraisals, those can all be anywhere from eight to $20,000 each. Uh, you may be hitting six figures in legal bills. Uh, between the lenders, lawyers, and, and your attorneys, and then, um, you know, third party, and then due diligence costs. So that is the risk of, of being a syndicator and a sponsor is investors' money does not get used until the day of closing. It can only be used for closing on the property. You can't use investor money prior to closing because there's the risk that it won't close. And so if you ever, if you're considering syndicating, that is actually the biggest risk is as, as the sponsor, you have to front all of that money to get the deal done. Now, once it closes, that's considered a reimbursable expense of doing the deal. So it's not forever out of pocket, but if something happens and it doesn't close, you, you basically, you lose all of that and you have to move on to the next deal. So if you're like on that deal you were talking about that you closed for 49.8, if you're putting, you know, $75,000 application fee, appraisal, legal, $250,000, portion of the good faith deposit that's hard on day one, you know, Andrew and his team and or your company, you might be all in for $500,000 before of non-refundable money before you know for certain that that property is going forward. Is that correct? Uh, unfortunately, yes. That's, that's, that's one of the bigger risks to the business. Yep. 
Ooh, all right. So that leads to the obvious question because nobody wants to, you know, put it out there and get it chopped off. How do you make sure that you're under contract for the right properties? I mean, that's got to be where the money's made, right? Because you can't just like kick the tires on four or five properties and lose a half a million dollars each. How, how do you how do you locate? How does Andrew locate? Well, first of all, let me ask: Are you the one that locates the property? Is that is that your zone of genius in this in this uh, enterprise? Yeah, that is. That, well, it's it's it is definitely it is. I do consider that one of my zone of geniuses or zones of genius. I guess as I said, right? Not not zone <laughs> yeah. of geniuses. Um, zones of genius. However, I can't take credit for developing it. Um, I've learned it from much more experienced people than myself over the years, and that's one of the things I love about real estate. Is in the corporate world, R&D stands for research and development. In real estate, I say it stands for rip off and duplicate. And what I mean by that is not, not a malicious thing. It's that everything's been done. There's, there's really not anything new in real estate. In order to succeed, all you need to do is find someone who's already successful at what you want to do, go learn what they're doing, and then go home and duplicate it, right? There's a big enough market. There's room for everybody, right? So, so every, and, you know, 99% of what I talk about, I've learned from people smarter than me over the last, you know, 13, 14 years. Uh, but, no, we have a very strict and well-developed screening procedure that um, uh, tells us, you know, what, not only what properties to buy, but what sub-markets to be in, what macro markets to be in, and what states to be in. So there's, there's, a, yeah, there's a very strict process that weeds out the vast majority of what we look at. Um, the, over the last, let's see, for the last two deals that we're buying, we're averaging having to look at, analyze 220 properties to make 28 offers to buy one, right? So, you know, that's, the, yeah, there's, there's a very, very strict, well-developed process to, to, to weed it out to make sure that once we go under contract and all that money is at risk, we know, we already know the high level of confidence that we're going to, that we want to buy this property. Um, now there's stuff that comes up in due diligence once you're walking every single unit and, and, you know, researching the title and all that. Um, there's, you know, two of the ways we mitigate that is one, we always have just unallocated reserves. So if there's a million dollar renovation budget, we might, you know, in the beginning up front, there might be 200 of that allocated to crap. We're going to find down the road, but we right. just don't know what it is yet. Right. So we always have, you always have cushion built in so that if one thing goes wrong, it doesn't blow up the deal. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to underwrite to that in advance. And then also a good contract attorney and good negotiating. So there, there, there are, you know, slight variations in wording and contracts that can give you an out if need be. And then we do have carve outs. I mean, when I say a carve out, it's basically a, an exception, right? So when I say, okay, we've got $250,000 of deposit, non-refundable day one, except if the seller commits fraud, if we find something wrong with title, or if there's an environmental issue, right? So what it basically means is, you know, we, we do have an out if there's something truly wrong with the property, but we don't have an out if we're like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we, we just don't like the neighborhood anymore. Like, yeah, no, these numbers don't really, to, these numbers don't really pencil out for me. I'm going to go ahead and step away. And it's like, all right, well, we're going to keep your quarter million dollars. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what's going to happen. Uh, they'll keep it and, you know, that's it. So. And I, I want to go back to these numbers. I wrote them down because they're striking to me, you know, uh, in the residential side of real estate. I know realtors who are like, oh, God, me and this client are on our fourth offer. We've seen 20 properties. I just want to stick a pen through my eye. 
but you guys evaluated like financial evaluation, uh, you know, location, market, average median income. You guys did a deep dive on 220 properties to make offers on 28 of them to get one accepted. That's what we're averaging for the last, I'd say about 18 months. Yeah. And is that because, uh, of those 220 projects, there's not enough upside. Sellers want too much money. They're like, what? What? What is a disqualifying? What's the number one disqualifying factor you find right now? Because obviously, the residential real estate market is super hot. So I imagine the multifamily property market is super hot, and people are, you know, buying and selling, and you know, they'll they'll overpay by a million dollars because, well, fuck it, I got to do a ten thirty one exchange, and I don't want to yep. pay capital <laughs> gains taxes. So that puts you in a bad spot if you're looking for good value add properties. What what tends to disqualify? those 220 properties to whittle it down to like, ah, we're only going to make an offer on like five or 10%. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, a laundry list of things that'll disqualify a property, but by far, number one is in one of the things you said is just pricing. Um, you know, in today's market, you know, and it's especially any property that gets significant exposure to the market, there is almost guaranteed to be somebody for whatever reason, who is going to be willing to pay a crazy high price for it. Um, maybe it's 1031 exchange. And Ken, I see a lot of 1031 people, you know, I'm like, man, I don't know if the, if the, if the tail's wagging the dog. Like, you know, are you buying a bad deal that's going to cost you more down the road? Yeah, you save some taxes now, but, you know, I'm not quite sure that, you know, in the, in the big picture, this that's actually going to help you what you just did. For those people that aren't familiar, can you explain what a 1031 exchange is um, for the person who's doing the 1031 exchange and then maybe explain why that might kind of bastardize the prices in the market? Could you explain a 1031 exchange and then and then what's going on? So, yeah, if you, let's say you bought a... Uh, uh, let's just say you bought a, a, t a 10 unit property for a million dollars a few years ago. And today it's worth 1.5 million, right? And we're going to ignore transaction costs and all that stuff. So for whatever reason, you want to sell that property and go buy another one. But if you pay taxes on that half a million dollar gain, just again, this is not your primary residence. There's no exclusions or anything like that. It's a $500,000 gain. If you pay taxes on that, that's going to, hurt your buying power and the government, the tax code really is a, is a, is a list of incentives, right? And so the government wants us to provide housing. So they give you tax breaks for doing that. And so what they say is, all right, if you sell that property where you have a half a million dollar gain and you exchange it for a similar or like kind property, you don't have to pay taxes on the gain from the first one, right? That your basis rolls over into the next one. And then when you sell the next one, you'll get caught up on those taxes unless you do another exchange, right? Right. And so there's a lot of really very wealthy people that they just keep doing this until they die. And then when they die, it passes on and you know they end up not really ever paying taxes on those gains. Um, so that's what a 1031 exchange is. But what happens sometimes is, and part of this has to do with the rules, is if you're doing a 1031 exchange, uh, there's very specific rules in terms of timing. And don't 100% quote me on this because uh, I'm, I'm not a, an exchange custodian or anything like that, but I believe you have 45 days to identify the next property, 45 days from when you sell the first one to identify the next property, and 180 days to close. So that puts in a, in a, in a market that's very hot, right? Think about it, you're just talking about the realtor who's shown 20 houses and made all these and they can't get one, right? So in a market that is 
so hot that it takes a ton of offers and a ton of time to find a deal, what happens is a lot of 1031 people get up against that clock and they're running out of time and they'll just start throwing out obscenely high offers just to get a deal. And, you know, when you look at what they're paying sometimes, it's like, well, wait a second. You know, if you're overpaying by twice as much money as you would have that you're saving in taxes is it might, you know, might've made sense for you just to pay the taxes now and then go, just go buy another property and have it over with, especially if capital gains rates are going to be higher in the future. It actually might make sense to pay those gains now instead of at 35% down the road or whatever it's going to be. And I'm not saying 1031s are bad um, or that you should never do them. It's just that we do see some people in the market probably not making the best buys because they're just getting a little too focused on the tax aspect and not the bigger picture. But what that leads to is just higher demand in the market and people willing to to pay higher prices. And there's, there's other reasons too. Um, some people have lower cost of capital, right? Like we bump up against hedge funds that can, you know, and, and different other entities that can borrow money at one and a half percent. And they can, you know, if they can get, five or 6% in an apartment, that's great. That's a huge, that's a huge spread for them or money from overseas. They're just looking for capital preservation. They, they don't want it to get taken from them. They just, they just don't want to lose it. So like, Hey, we'll put it in a U.S. apartment complex. We're almost guaranteed to not lose money. And hey, if we make a few percent even better, right? So there's a lot of that is what makes it. So drives up pricing and makes it so that someone like you or myself is not going to be able to compete with those people. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't even really think about this because my mindset is still kind of small in the residential market. But when you are when you're working in these, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70 million dollar property zones, you are competing against BlackRock hedge fund who's like, hey, we just got to park 70 million dollars. It's 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 our money. It's free. So if we can make a three percent, you know, three percent multiple on it or whatever, or five percent rate of return, we're we're crushing it because it's our money. It's just sitting there doing nothing. So you are currently when you're making offers, you're competing against the Warren Buffetts of the world or the Chinese billionaire who's just trying to get money out of China into the U.S. market. Like these are the people you're competing against when you're making offers. Sometimes, yeah. Um, and it always blows my mind when we're looking at, you know, a 30, 40, 50, 70 million dollar deal and the broker calls like, hey, sorry, we got an all cash offer close in 30 days, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just mind blowing amounts of money, right? Um, but no, so we actually recently listed a property for sale in Atlanta. And uh, um, my perception going into it was that it was a lot of the buyers would probably be you know, kind of new syndicators, because this was a smaller property, 132 units. Um, we were expecting it to go for about 17 and a half million. So I thought a lot of the buyers were going to be kind of new syndicators, people just really excited to, you know, to get into the game, um, which is good. Uh, but it was rather instructive because at the end of the process, out of the 25 or so legitimate offers that we had, probably only two were either local or kind of new or smaller syndicators. While the rest of them were large, well-funded, very sophisticated entities, um, companies that owned 10, 15, 18,000 units, you know, in the, across the country in the Southeast. And what we observed is these guys are all out there doing everything they can to get their hands on as much real estate as they can. What's, was, was, was a bit of an insight, like, because, you know, we're always looking at it like, okay, we're 10 years into a cycle, pricing is definitely high, 
you know, what are the risks going forward? And it's, it was, it's, it was instructive to see, well, okay, you know, the buyers out there, it's not just a bunch of people getting overexcited like it was in 2006, right? Well, I can, yeah, my, my, you know, the, where the, where the, you know, your hairdresser, uh, you know, bought three houses and then just sold them to the next person for forty thousand more. Like that's not who our buyers, who our buyers are. Most of the buyers are again very well funded, very sophisticated entities. And so, like, what we took from that is one, like, dang, no wonder it's so hard to win deals. And then number two, you know, if all of these guys with, you know. A huge amount of resources. If they are trying to get their hands on as much commercial real estate as they can, that's probably a good sign that we should be doing the same, um, but without changing our underwriting standards. And so the solution to that is going back to what we talked about before, you know, and as the market heats up, how do you keep doing deals that are as good as you used to be doing? Well, now you have to look at even more, right? So we used right. to look at 10 deals to get one. Now it's 200 something. Yeah. Yeah. And can you go through, by the way, is it public knowledge yet what you sold that $17 million property for? Uh, it's under contract. So okay, I can't so. quite say, but I can say it is well above that number. Perfect. So lucky for you and your investors. Um, so, so talk me through, you know, if I'm, if I'm a potential investor in Andrew's syndication and you're putting together a $50 million deal, um, what, what does that look like for you as far as money down, expected rate of return? You know, how much do you guys take off the top as the syndicator? And then what can the investor kind of respect, expect as a reasonable rate of return? And let's just say you bought it for 50 million and you sold it for 50 million because the market stays sideways. Um, and I don't think you would ever do that. You'd probably only sell if there was a profit. But if the market stayed sideways and I kind of just got my dividend and interest, like what does the deal look like for you? How much money do you have to put together? And then what can the investor kind of expect as a, as a rate of return for coming alongside you? Yeah. Um, I mean, so just, I'll, I'll try, I'll, I'll just kind of stick to, to general terms. Perfect. Um, so how, how syndications work and, and there's a ton of pieces there, Scott. So if I miss any, just jump yeah, in and say, oh, hey, I'm taking notes this or whatever. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, uh, or if I just wander off track, which I, you know, tend to do occasionally. Um, so generally how the syndications work is, and then how we do it is I'll start kind of at the top is there's uh either the idea is, investors are getting a return on their money and investment and the risk that they're taking investing in the deal and the sponsor. Um, and candidly, you're really investing more in this person than you are in the deal. Um, a good sponsor can turn a crappy deal around. A bad sponsor can make an awesome deal go bad in a heartbeat, right? So you're, you're really, number one, you're betting on the person. Number two, you're betting on the deal. Uh, but how, how it generally works is there's, you know, the investors come in uh, as limited and this is again, you know, we do it this way, but this is, this is, you know, almost any syndicator you're looking at in the industry is going to have a, a similar structure. So as an investor, you are purchasing shares of the LLC that's buying the property, right? So if you're doing a $50 million deal, you might have 50 or a hundred investors. You're not going to put a hundred people on title, right? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to form you know, my, my $50 million deal LLC, that LLC is going to buy the property. And then everybody comes in as owners or members of that LLC. So that's kind of the legal structure of it. And so as an investor, you are buying shares of that LLC and those shares entitle you to a percentage of the profits from operation and from sale 
and the depreciation, right? Um, and that that that's one of the biggest benefits of of investing in real estate syndication because you can syndicate anything. Um, Syndication is not specific to real estate. But one of the benefits of a real estate syndication is the depreciation passes through uh, to the investor on the K-1. And a K-1 is basically just the name of the tax form that you get every year from each of your investments. And so that shares of the LLC that you purchased, that entitles you, like I said, to an economic a percentage of the economic benefits of the property, kind of going back to that cruise ship, right? You get your room and your bit of the buffet, right? So the typical share is, um, and how, like, for example, how we do most of ours is 80% of the profit from operation and profit from sale goes to investors. And then 20% goes to us as the sponsor. And that is our financial benefit and gain for, for doing all of this and taking the upfront risk, finding the deal, you know, all and operating it and, and all of that. Um, in many cases, you'll hear what's called a preferred return and that, you know, industry normal is a lot, a lot of times it's zero. I uh, was commonly somewhere between six and 8%, but what a preferred return is, that means the investors have to get a certain level of return before the sponsor can get any of theirs, right? So let's just say there's a preferred return of 6%. And that means, you know, Scott, you put in $100,000 and the preferred return this year is 6%. You have to get a $6,000 distribution during that 12 month period before the sponsor can get anything because of that 6% preferred return. So basically, so, you know, Scott, you invested hundred grand, you have to get your 6% before I can get anything. So you're getting, it could work one of two ways, either in that preferred return, um, I'm getting my 6,000. And even though you're legally authorized to take 20% off the top because you're the sponsor in the LLC, if you don't meet the obligation of paying the investors their 6%, your 20% profit, you just diminish and diminish and diminish. So you're highly, highly motivated to run this as profitable as possible. Yes. Um, however, now you said, you know, even though you're not legally bound, that's not really true because it's, it's in the, all of this structure is in the operating agreement for the LLC. Got and it. a good operating agreement should have this in exquisite detail. Um, I mean, these operating agreements will be 70 pages, right. uh, but it should all be laid out exactly how it works. So yeah, basic, you know, that there, you know, the investor has to get the six and then if, if they, if you don't get your six, so let's say, let's say, you know, the, the preferred return this year is 6% and you get 5,000, right? Well, you're short 1%. Now what? That 1% carries over to the next year. So now you have to get seven to get caught up, right? And let's say, let's say for whatever reason, the whole thing doesn't work out as planned. And for five years straight, you know, you get $5,000 a year. Or you get well, zero. I mean, I mean, you can get zero, right? Well, yeah, or, or zero, right? So, all right, so let's, let's just say you got zero for five years. So now you've got, you know, 6% times five, you got 30% of preferred return uh, accrued. So now when the profit, when the property sells, if there's enough money, um, then you have to get caught up on that 30% before the sponsor can get anything. So that's what's called a cumulative preferred return. That's kind of the, again, that's pretty, not everybody does it. And there's other, there are 
other ways of structuring it, but that, you know, I'm kind of, I want to stick with what, what's most common for people to see. Yeah. Uh, and so that, yeah, that's kind of the structure. So, um, any other, I mean, there's lots more, so I don't want to just, I don't, I don't want to give a monologue. So yeah, any no, other no. specific points you want me to touch on? You know, it's so funny, whether it's, uh, GoBundance, the group that we're in, which are men that are, you know, tend to have either incomes or net worth high enough to be able to make these kind of investments. And they're just trying to live life big and be great family men and be great businessmen. Um, you know, a book that's going around in our circle and also front row dads and a bunch of business groups I'm in is, uh, who, not what. And so I want to go back to this idea of like, hey, a sponsor can save a shitty deal and turn things around, uh, uh, a good sponsor. A bad sponsor can can screw up a pristine deal that should have huge returns. So, you know, I imagine most people come to you and say, well, what deals you got? What, what properties are you buying? What's the rate of return? What's the operating agreement? But it sounds like to me what you're saying is like, hey, it's, it's more about Andrew and their team and the who who are going to put the deal together and manage it than whether or not we're buying 200 units in Georgia or 400 units in North Carolina, because the who is going to be so much more important than the what. So can you talk to that a little bit, you know, and, and, and I know you're not good at self aggrandizing or uh, patting yourself on the back, but can, can you tell us why the who, why the sponsor is so important? Cause in my mind, I'm like, well, if you buy a 400 unit property, 10% under market, like who can fuck that up? Um, oh, but everybody. everybody, okay, perfect. Okay. So that's the story I want to hear. What's, how does the who affect this so much? Yeah. So the, I think that the best way, uh, or that one of the easiest ways to maybe, illustrate that if you buy a $300,000 comp uh, house in your standard, you know, track home development, you can fix it up. You can, you know, make it nice. You can, however, but when you go to sell it, the value of that property really is going to be determined by the comparable sales in the, in that neighborhood, right? If all the other houses sold for three fifty and you overspent and put $300,000 of work into an awesome kitchen and all this, you might get a little bit more, but you're not going to be too far above three fifty, right? In the commercial world, and especially in multifamily, the properties are valued by the cash flow coming off of it, right? What determines that cash flow? How well that property is being operated. So when you, when you listen to podcasts and you listen and you hear the gurus and the boot camps and the books, everything is focused on how do you get that deal, right? Because it is, that's exciting. It's sexy. And you, you know, until you get your first deal, you don't have a business. So there's, you know, there's a legitimate reason for that, but the real money in apartments is made in the operations, the asset management and the property management, because when you go to sell, your property isn't valued. Yes, people look at the sales comps as a point of reference. The, the appraiser is going to look at that. But how it's actually valued by the market and by the buyers is they're going to take the cap rate in that market, which is, you know, that's not, it basically it stands for capitalization rate. And look at what that really is, is cap rate is a measure of market sentiment, right? So if, a, if we say a cap rate is 10% in one market and a cap rate is 5% in another market, generally speaking, the lower the cap rate, that means investors have a higher level of confidence in that market and assets in that market. So if you're selling a low cap rate, is actually, the lower the cap rate, the better, right? Um, and, and what happens is, is you take, so what happens is you take your cash flow and divide by, 
the cap rate for that type of asset in that market, and that gives you your valuation. Okay, so if you have a um, and I'm, well, I'm going to try to do math on the fly without having finished my coffee, so we'll see how well this goes. Um, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar a year net operating income, okay, which so is this your is profit flow. on the building, hundred thousand yeah, dollar profit is your on cash the building. flow not factoring in the mortgage and depreciation, right? Because that's, that's, you know, mortgage and all that, that's, that's finance and accounting. That's not the property, right? right? So people are concerned about what kind of income stream can I get from the property, regardless of what kind of debt I put on it. So if you've got a hundred thousand dollar a year net operating income and you're in a market and if you find one of these markets today, let me know. But if you're in a market where the cap rates are 10%, right? You're going to take that $100,000, divide it by 0.1, which is 10%. Valuation of your property is a million dollars. Okay. Now take that same $100,000 cash flow and move it to a nut in that same asset and put it in another market where the cap rate is 5%. $100,000 divided by 0.05, that cash debt asset is now worth 2 million, right? So that's how properties are valued. So looking at it from another way, let's say you buy a property where the cash flow or the net operating income is 100,000 and the cap rate is 5%. So you just, you just say you bought it for $2 million. If you can get in there and over, I don't know, a five-year period, operate it well, and figure out how to get that net operating income up to 200,000. And let's just say cap rates stay the same. You've just created $2 million because now $2 million divided by 0.05, I'm sorry, 200,000 net operating income divided by 0.05 is a $4 million building, right? So that's why unlike the single family, in apartments, the operator is the key because how well they understand the markets, understand the asset class, how well they underwrote it in the first place, and the people they put in place to run the day-to-day, those things are going to determine that cash flow, and that cash flow is going to determine how successful of a sale you have down the road. Now, I think this is public information, so you, I'll ask the question. You can tell me if I need to shut up. Um, on, on that $50 million property that you bought uh, a year ago, was that a year ago? You uh, it was in March of this year. March of this year. I, it was either that one or another one that you've acquired in the last 24 months. You guys went in there, you cleaned it up, you used your economy of scale to get the expenses down and the revenue up, and now your cash flow is better. You shared a success story of a building that, uh, you know, you bought for X and appraised for X, like within a year or two. Was that this building that recently had a large jump in value? Um, it may be, it might be, we've got, got a handful that fit that description. So I'm not sure specifically which one you're, you're referring to, but I can use that one as an example because we actually just looked at the valuation yesterday. So that particular prop, and I can talk about this because it's, it's closed and you know, no more investors can come in or anything like that. So, um, we, again, we purchased that for 49.8 and in the six, let's see, six months that we've owned it, um, our, Average rent increases now stands at four hundred and eight dollars per unit. Now, now it's again it's two hundred fifty units, so we haven't gotten that. Not every unit is up four hundred and eight, but the ones that we have 
you know, done a light renovation on are up on average $408 a unit. So in, in so during that six month time frame, we've increased the net operating income. Also, by choosing the right market, Fort Walton Beach is a very strong market, huge population growth, strong median incomes, you know, low crime, we're not in a flood zone, you know, all the a whole bunch of the things that we look at. So we're, we were, we, we bought an asset in a, in a market that gave us a strong tailwind. So we have a, you know, greater odds of success, lower execution risk. And then by getting in there and bumping the rents that much, when you combine how much our net operating income has gone up with where the cap rates for the, that asset is today, if we were to sell it today, it would sell for pro- between 70 and $73 million. Right. And we bought it for 49.8 six months ago. Um, and, and we're not, you know, again, we're probably only 25% of the way through increasing that net operating income because we have a whole lot more units to renovate and turn. Um, so, you know, did we underwrite that? Well, yes. Did we pick the right market? Yes. But, you know, part of that, that, that's why picking the right market makes, um, makes such a big difference. And that's why you have to, that's why it's important to have, you know, as a sponsor or, or someone who's buying properties to have a disciplined approach to where you buy, because it increases, I mean, I mean, it's easy in one sense, Hey, we got lucky. Right. Right. But by buying that way, it increases the odds that you're going to get lucky. Right. You know, right. I, I cannot say, I did not predict we were going to get $400 rent increases. We predicted 200, I think it was 270. Right. So we actually got it wrong. We, we underestimated it. Uh, and, but because of, the way that, you know, one is, yeah, the market shifted for everybody and we're all benefiting from that. And I can't take any credit for that. But part of it too is, is by being in a market that benefited even more than average, it increases your odds of doing that. So again, it gets down to, you know, back to your, your, the original question of you're really betting on a sponsor more than a deal. There are attractive looking properties in all kinds of horrible places, right? So you're betting on a person who knows how to, pick the right property in the right market and then operate it well during the whole time. And, um, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. When you gave me, um, I was at the event in Manhattan beach that we all went to and you kind of went through your 10 point checklist of like how we evaluate properties. You know, it's, it's nothing, nothing groundbreaking per se, but it's like, adding them all together of like median income, population growth, you know, just looking on Google Maps to see if we have more green and blue yardage around us than brown dead dirt lots around us, you know, just like simple things that anybody could do, but you start to put that all together. And then I can see how you would quickly go from 220 properties down to just accepting one um, because, you know, you've got a lot of disqualifiers, but when you go through all of that, you know, luck favors the prepared, you got some tailwind, you got a little bit better, uh, better rent, rent increase than you expected and, um, you know, renovated the units well, I'm sure you were able to bring operating costs down because you have this huge economy of scale. And so just for the mental exercise, although your investors are in this long term, um, any of your investors who put in $100,000 into this syndicate on this property that you bought for 50 and it's now worth 70, presumably their, you know, $100,000 is now worth 140 because there's intrinsic increase of value on the property. But on that initial $100,000, 
what rate of return do you project they're going to get over the next couple of years? Are they going to get a 5% return on their money, you know, based on operating income? Are they going to get a 10% return on their money? Like, what do you, what do you think they'll get in interest uh, or dividends, I should say, until you guys decide to sell? Yeah. So, I mean, so reality on that deal in, in particular is, is actually far above projected. Um, I, I can tell you, you know, what, you know, the, I mean, the actual internal rate of return in, on that is, is, is on track to be probably well into the 20s um, because of that, that surge that we've had in the last six months. But, you know, when, when we did the underwriting, when we put it out to investors, the, the pro forma on that, I want to say it was like a 14.2% IRR or something like that, which is crazy because when I started this business, we used to, in, in 2011, we used to throw away deals that were any below 30 Right. If something had less than a 30 percent you know, annual return, we were like, yeah, not interested in this. Right. And then, you know, now, you know, we're having to look at 200 deals to find something that we truly believe. Yes, we can we can make this, you know, this will deliver a 14.4 or whatever. So, you know, when you're looking, when, when investors are looking at uh, multifamily syndications in particular, I'd say that the norm is anywhere from 12 to 16% IRR. And that varies depend that should vary depending on how much risk is being undertaken, right? So if you're buying a A minus property in, you know, Austin, Texas, which is probably going to keep growing like crazy for a long time, it's well located. There's not that much risk really in buying that property. So your into so your return should be on the lower side. That might be a 12 or a 13 or you know something like that. If you're looking at a property that's built in 1972 and it's got a ton of deferred maintenance and it's 30% vacant and it's in the borderline area and, so, and the plan is to go in and do a big renovation and clean it up and, and you know change the demographic, that can be done. And there's lots of people who've done exceptionally well with it. We used to do that in the beginning of the cycle. Um, you know, that can that should have a higher return because there's a lot more execution risk, right? So that should be maybe a 15 or a 16% IRR. New development, that should be more like 18 to 22. So if someone is looking at, oh, hey, you know, I think I might want to invest in a syndication, don't just look at the, um, the high-level numbers. Look at, number one, like you said, kind of the sponsor and what their experience is doing it. But then, two, you'll look at you look try to look into the assumptions that are going into making that projected return, and then also uh, the amount of of again execution risk. Right? Does everything have to go just right to hit that number, or is that, that kind of like the base case? And as long as some things go right, you'll hit that number. Um, so that's kind of the kind of the standard returns we like to underwrite between like said, 13 to 16. Candidly, if we look at a deal and it comes out to 18% IRR, we're going to go in and just lower the assumptions and bring it back down to a probably, you know, 15 or something like that. Um, we just don't feel comfortable promising. Well, it's not a promise. It's not a guarantee. It's a projection. Um, we just don't feel comfortable projecting, you know, much higher than the 16 or whatever, um, you know, in, in the current market. Yeah. But th those are, those are kind of the normal, the normal ranges, um, uh, for, for where the market is today. 
Interesting. And, you know, I, I start to think as you're talking through this about, you know, risk and what's the, you know, what's the 2008, 2009 black swan event that could, you know, take out Washington Mutual, that could take mm-hmm. out these syndicates. And I think the fact that you've weathered the storm speaks highly about you because to me in your space, the black swan event is the government stepping in and being like, no, you don't have to pay your rent. Like, you know, (laughs) COVID moratorium, fuck it. If you don't want to pay your rent, it's fine. It's all on the landlords. So can you talk a little bit about the last year? And I don't want to make this all political, but you know, what are the ramifications for large, you know, people would look at you and be like, well, you're doing $50 million deals. You're rich. You can afford it. I'm sure all your investors are rich, but I know people that have money in your fund that count on that interest in dividends to pay their bills, you know? Um, And so when we talk about navigating this last year where the federal government came in and told a bunch of people they didn't necessarily have to pay their rent, um, how did you guys mitigate that risk? How did you weather that storm? Did it affect you? Like, you know, were you you peeing in your pants a little bit when you realized you've got several thousand units that might just decide to not pay their rent? What happens, what happens for you the last 18 months? Yeah, you got to love when the government steps in and say, oh, contract law no longer applies, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so, and candidly, when they first did that, it was kind of like, all right, yeah, it makes sense. All right, you know, hey, we got a pandemic. And everyone was just told they can't go to work. All right, fine, right? It's when it started stretching into, you know, month 12 and 18, that's like, all right, guy, and we've got vaccines and we have super low unemployment and like, all right, this this, this needs to stop at that point. Um, The short version is, is we actually weathered it very, very well. Uh, 2020 uh, was the best year we ever had until 2021, which is blowing 2020 away. So we're having the best years we've ever had in terms of um, operations and operating net operating income and all of that. The reason, the, the reasons for that being, you know, one of the, you know, we talked about, you, Scott, you mentioned the, the screening criteria, right? And how we, we have this checklist of like 10 things we go through. One of the things that's not officially on that checklist, it, but it's a soft requirement, is we buy in areas that we see as having low legislative risk, right? Meaning there's a lower risk of the state, local governments coming in and and doing something anti-landlord, right? So we do not buy in California. I was just gonna say, buy. you and I both live in California and I bet there's a 0% chance that you have anything from California in your portfolio. No, live where you enjoy living and invest where you get the best returns and the lowest risk, right? So do not buy in California. Do not buy in New York. Uh, I could list a whole bunch of cities I wouldn't touch with a 50-foot pole. Um, and so, number one, we were not in any of the areas that kind of had that mentality. I know I've talked to operators who own in, you know, California and San Francisco and New York, and, yeah, they really are hurting. Um, you know, so that's number one is – we did not own anything in areas that uh, tend to be anti-landlord. So that mentality of, oh, cool, we don't have to pay just doesn't really exist as much. So that was the first thing. The second thing is, you know, yes, there are people, tenants, who are just absolutely taking advantage of the situation, right? Though they definitely exist. The vast majority of people, that's not the case. Uh, there are people, you know, the vast majority of them, yeah, they got COVID. They were sick for a month. Or... You know, they can only, you know, their job is, they work, you know, some of the jobs that haven't come back as much are, you know, were the service jobs and until recently, and yet they've only been able to work 20 hours or, you know, they have legitimate hardship. And 
So what we did with those, most of those people, any basically anyone that would communicate with us and that we felt like were being honest and transparent with us, we put them on payment plans. So maybe they paid 50% of rent for six months and then we'll, we'll catch it up later. Um, you know, some people we just said, hey, you know what, uh, you can't pay. If you just give us the keys, we'll, we, you know, we'll let you break the lease with no penalties, no fees. We're not going to come after you for anything. Just, no, you know what, we understand, tough situation, we'll let it go. Um, so, and then also, you know, when, you know, there's a lot of agents, even before the various, you know, stimulus packages were passed, there's a lot of agencies out there designed to help people, you know, get behind on rent, whatever. So we would help people apply, since we'd apply for them. And so the net effect of that is, is out of every hundred units, we maybe only had one or two people uh, that were just sitting in the units, not saying I'm not paying and I'm not leaving. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, again, that's one of the beautiful things about apartments is if you own a house and the tenant says, I'm not paying your income goes to zero. If you've got a hundred units and two people say, I'm not paying, you're really not going to feel that. Right. right. I mean, obviously you want to maximize every dollar you can, but it's not going to, you know, you're, you're not going bankrupt because two people stop paying. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, so even in the midst of the pandemic, even in the midst of the moratoriums, we had, we had a handful of properties um, that are in the 90 to 150 unit range that had zero delinquency at the end of the month, meaning every single tenant had paid. And it was just a function, largely a function of trying to, work with the residents as best as we can and, 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 and treat them well. But then also, um, you know, one of the, one of the misunderstandings about the moratorium is it was not a blanket moratorium. It didn't say you can't evict anybody. It just said you can't evict someone who qualifies under the rules of the moratorium. And when it came down to it, a lot of those people who were just like, I'm not going to pay and I, I don't have to, and I'm not leaving those folks also didn't want to go get qualified for the exemption. And so we were able to evict them um, through the process because, you know, we said, Hey, okay. in part of the part, you we had to give them notice. Well, all right, if you want, if you want to fall under the exemption, you have to, you know, here's the, I forget, it was like seven, here's the seven things the CDC says you have to do to get exempted. Most of them wouldn't do it. And so, yes, we were able to get them out. And again, this is probably only one or 2% of, of our residents. So, right. you know, why would, you know, so that's part of why our experience was so much different was again, you know, legislative being in the right areas, business friendly to really trying to work with people as much as we can. And then the third thing is again, getting back to that checklist. When you purchase properties in areas where there's a high enough median income so that your apartments are affordable to the vast majority of people in those areas, those, those folks can absorb a little bit more of a hit than if you're in a, let's say, C-class neighborhood where, you know, everyone's hand-to-mouth every week, and if they get a flat tire, they can't pay rent. Those, those markets, those properties, they definitely got hit harder um, by COVID and the moratoriums because, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, those folks, you know, live on a, a tighter budget and, and a much tighter um, you know, economic status and it takes less to knock them into, I can't pay. Yeah. Um, so again, gets back to screening, buying in markets that give you tailwinds, buying in markets that give you advantages, 
And you know, I think that that those those three things combined are, are why, yeah, us and a lot of other operators actually ended up doing pretty well. That's amazing, man. And, and that really states the case, kind of your home example of rent going to zero if you lose your one tenant. That kind of states the case why somebody like myself might want to go into syndication. So let's say I have $100,000, which I do, that I want to put into some type of property investment. I don't know. I'll pick the wrong neighborhood. I'll pick the wrong tenant. I'll pick a house that has mold in the walls. By the way, these are all things that have actually happened in the past when I've tried to manage my own oh, real estate. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, versus, and, and I don't know if this is public knowledge, but can you share how many doors uh, your team currently owns or operates or how much, uh, how much assets is under management? Is that public knowledge or something you can share? Yeah, we've, um, I think we've acquired about, I think, it's, I think we're at like 2,350, something around there. Cool. Um, and we have sold some, I mean, we, we, we sold, we sold off everything in Texas and we're, we're selling some Atlanta stuff. Um, so I think we currently manage around 13 to 1400. Okay. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I rather have my, my, hundred thousand dollars diversified amongst a 200 unit project or a 1300, you know, unit portfolio or whatever the case may be, because it just mitigates risk. Whereas if I go put my hundred thousand dollars into a rental property down the street here in LA or where we have our second house in Vegas, it's like, I don't know, I could totally choose wrong. And then the market crashes or the tenants an a-hole or the, yeah, I just, I buy, I buy a house on liquefaction or who knows what, you know, and it's like, it all goes away. And so, um, is is the syndication, let, let's assume you're a trustworthy guy. Let's assume that you guys do good work. Is the syndication set up where somebody like me can set it and forget it and there's no ongoing headache or legal review or there's no board of directors meeting I got to go to? Is it just like, hey, Andrew, here's some money. Please go do the best you can with it. I trust you to get me seven, eight, nine, 10%. If we, if we hit a home run, it's 14% and I end up in one of those Atlanta type deals where, you know, the money doubles in five years. Great. But I, I'm just looking for singles and doubles and I don't want to ever think about this again. Maybe one email from you a year. Is that how it works or am I, am I missing something where there's some more proactive uh, activity by the investor um, that I don't know about yet? Yeah, the syndications are intended as a passive investment. Um, part of the you know, the idea behind it is, you know, you know, a lot of our clients, for example, are successful entrepreneurs or, and doctors, you know, people who make high incomes or have a high net worth because of something else they're good at. And like, well, I don't have the time expertise or the desire to go look at 200 properties. And even if I did, I don't want to have to be responsible for running this thing. So yeah, that's where a syndication comes in where you say, okay, I'm going to invest 50 or a hundred or a million or whatever with somebody that that is what they specialize in. And I'm betting on them to send me, you know, a return on my money. And I wouldn't say, I definitely wouldn't say um, only look for one email a year. <laughs> I, you know, I, I would definitely as a, as a past investor, you know, do take the time to read the, read the, you know, read the reports about your investment. So some, 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 some sponsors do them monthly. We do them quarterly. Uh, and I, you know, either, either, either method is, it's just a preference. So I'm, you know, either one is, is fine. Uh, so I would say, you know, Scott, if you give me 50 grand, I, I would ask you to read the quarterly report. Okay. But other than that, it, yes, it's meant to, it's meant to be 
you were just like, oh, hey, that deposit showed up on my in my account again. Cool. Um, oh, that means I need to go read the report. That's probably in my email. Yes. So, yeah. Four four emails a year I can handle. It's um, you know, it's it's the other stuff. I, I run plenty of businesses between the podcast, the coaching, and the mortgage and whatnot. So I don't I don't need any more headache. I just need somebody to make money for me, which is weird because. I, I think it's more socially acceptable. I'm thinking of some investor friends I have where, you know, they've handed money over to brokers to invest in the stock market and maybe they've lost and maybe they've won um, or maybe they trust the Vanguard auto bot to, you know, do the investment for them. Um, but it seems like there's kind of more of a social norm to hand over my money to a stock broker and go play in the stock market. But if you just do a quick Google search of like property syndicators. It's like, oh no, don't do that. That's a scam. That's snake oil salesman. That doesn't work. Why is there a weirdness in either the internet community or the investor community? Why is there a little bit of a hesitation to be like, well, what's the difference between handing my hundred grand over to Andrew and he invests in a tangible asset like a property versus handing it off to Billy Bob who works at investment firm ABC and he's going to invest it for me in the market I don't see the disconnect, but there is a disconnect if you read online. So is there a reason why there's a bit of a bad reputation around either property syndication or trusting somebody with your money in real estate versus trusting somebody with your money in the stock market? Um, or or maybe, maybe you don't see the same thing, but that's just kind of what I was coming across when I did a quick Google search about property syndication. And I think you're right. And I think Number one, there's there certainly is truth to it, and, and and I'll get to that in a second. But the other piece is I think there's an aura of legitimacy when it's like, well, it's this big company. They've been around for decades, um, so they can't be all that bad. Right. Right. And, you know, they're publicly traded, so there's, you know, there's auditors looking at them. The SEC is watching them. And, well, it can't, you know, so it should be fine, right? And, well, we know how 2008 worked out with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns right. and all that. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure there, there's as many, they're, they're being watched as closely as they should be. Um, but uh, all that, I think that's part of it. So it's like, hey, you know what? If I give my money to, uh, you know, to, to Chase or Vanguard, this is a well-known, well-restricted, well-respected brand. You know, they're, they're not going to disappear to Mexico overnight with my money. Right. So, and, and, and I, and there's some legitimacy, I think in that thought process, um, you know, especially with like a Vanguard or something like that. So, so there's truth to that. And then on the flip side, unfortunately there, because the, in the world of syndication, uh, there, there's not a huge barrier to entry. If you, I mean, if you just say, Hey, I'm going to start doing this, uh, there's not, you know, if, if you can find the property, and if you can find the investors, you can basically, you can get started in it, right? So there's not a huge barrier to entry, um, which means kind of like with becoming a realtor, right? I mean, 90% of them do it because, well, I want a side job, and, you know, and they're going to list three houses a year and something like the top 10% do like 80 or 90% of the volume, right? Because they're yeah. the ones that that's their, that's their thing. They're they love it. They're good at it, and they and they crush it. It's kind of similar in the syndication world, where it's not that hard to get in, but it is hard to be really good at it. Um, and so, a lot of the ones that either didn't get the education, didn't you know get mentorship, didn't learn the business properly, didn't get the skills, um, those can give a bad name to the industry as a whole. And then, yes, unfortunately, 
you know, I think you're, you know, when you're dealing with individual sponsors or, you know, very small companies, like, you know, like we're a very small company. I've got, we've got, you know, our core team is five people. And then of course we have all the, you know, the onsite stuff, the properties, but that, that's a small company compared to Vanguard. Right. Right. So when you're dealing with individuals or very small companies, I think it's easier for fraud and misrepresentation to go under the radar uh, and, and, and get missed. And, you know, more so because, you know, if you're investing with, uh, you know, Billy Bob syndicator, you're really betting on Billy Bob, right? Whereas if you're investing with Vanguard, there's a certain level of, you know, hey, there's reputation management there, right? There, there's reasons for them to not just disappear in the night with your money. So I think, I think that's, so I, so I would say what you're finding is correct. And that's where it really gets down to, that's, again, that's a big piece of why you're really betting on the sponsor, not just the deal. And, and, and as a, you know, when we talked earlier about, hey, these are passive investments, right? You, 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 you send the money and your job is to just check for the deposit every quarter and look at the report. Your work is upfront in deciding who you're going to invest with and then in what deal. Um, Ryan Burke, he's another syndicator. He's been out and doing this for about 30 years. He recently published a book called the hand, I think it's called the hands off property investor or the hand. Um, and it's like 300 pages. It's not a short book, but he goes through in exquisite detail. He did a really good job with it about as a passive investor, how you pick who and what to invest in. You know, it's funny at your recommendation, I downloaded that on um, audible and I'm about six or seven chapters in. And I think it's, I think it's great. Um, let me give the, uh, the book here. Oh man, I, I was listening to it just the other day that, yeah, the hands off investor by Brian Burke. And for a business book on Audible, it's it's almost 12 hours long, which is pretty long for a business book. And a little bit of it is like a little esoteric. I'm like, hey, man, I didn't need so many stories. Just get to the punchline. Um, but it is very good. And it, it gives you a framework to kind of think through, to your point, how do you do the work up front and find the find the best horse? Because, you know, in thoroughbred racing, the, the, the choosing of the horse, the training of the horse, the, the, the feeding of the horse you know, that all goes into what a two minute race <laughs> and the two minute race is, is, is it, it's done one way or the other. Like once I wire you the money, it's kind of done. Uh, but I got to do all the, all the pre-work, which is one of the reasons we're doing this interview. Um, I've got a couple rapid fire questions and then we'll close with, you know, whatever thoughts you have or whatever question I forgot to ask you, how long you've been doing this in the real estate uh, game and the syndication game? Yeah. So I, I took the standard route into real estate and got a chemical engineering degree. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you, you were by trade, a chemical engineer. Yeah. Yeah. I worked as a chemical engineer for about seven and a half years. So when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how or what. So I figured, Hey, if I get a chemical engineering degree, I'll, yeah, at least I'll have a good job until I figure out what I really want to do. Right. So yeah. And then, um, in 2007, right. As the, the crash was taking shape. I quit my engineering job to start flipping houses here in Southern California. Uh, that was great. Uh, but after a few years, I said, hey, this is almost like just another job, uh, except it's a lot more hours. And my wife is a business partner. So we said, you know, what's the next big thing? What's the next cycle that's, that's going to take off? And we said, well, everyone just got foreclosed on, so they can't buy a house. That means they're going to rent. We also just had a huge recession which means we're probably going to have a big, long expansion. 
So if you couple an expansion with a whole nother, a whole you know giant increase to the renter pool, apartments should probably do pretty well. So we went and found a guy um, who had done 800 units, friend of a friend, hired him to teach us the business. And in 2011, um, our first one was 92 units out in Macon, Georgia. And then we went full-time into apartments. And so I guess we've been doing it full-time for, for 10 years now. Cool. And so not really a fair question because we've had 10 years of bull market in just about every asset. But have you had a, have you had a losing year? We've never lost investor money. Um, I can go over if you, want, if you want. We can touch on the worst syndication we've ever done, though. Perfect. Go for it. Yeah. So this was, oh, geez, I think we bought it in 2012 or something somewhere around there. So this was early on. Uh, this was before we had any of the screening procedures that we have in now. And in fact, you, know, you always hear people say you learn more from your failures than your successes. And that is absolutely true because you know the last 10 deals that have, that have been home runs, part of the reason for that is because after this property, we said, okay, here's all the things we're not going to do. Right. Um, so yeah, we bought a early seventies construction, you know, C minus property in a rough area of South Dallas. I had years of deferred maintenance. Um, so needed tons and tons of work. And, uh, I, I don't remember if I said the size or not, it was 350 units. So it was a beast. And so we got in there and we're like, Hey, we're going to do renovations. We're going to bump the rents $125 and then, you know, over and then five years later, sell it. So we got in, we started doing the renovations. We got the rent increases, but we, what we underestimated was just how rough the demographic was there. So we'd renovate a unit, someone would move in, and six months later, they'd stop paying. And instead of just leaving, so we'd turn, they would destroy the unit, either while they're living there or on their way out. So we ended up having to renovate every time a unit vacated. On top of that, like I said, it was a you know 40-something-year-old building with deferred maintenance. So the operating costs were through the roof because it was such an old building. It's had, it had what's called a chiller system, which means the entire property in Dallas, Texas, in the summer, runs on one giant AC unit, right? And it has these underground pipes that lead to all the units to cool all the units. So guess what happens if that chiller system breaks down? Was it a million bucks? Or, what's that? Was that a million bucks and nobody has air conditioning? Yeah, you have 350 families in Dallas in August that don't have air conditioning, right? Not just like, oh, hey, an air conditioner broke down the entire property or the pipes underground break. And now they not only do the property not have under not have air conditioning, but you, you're pumping thousands and thousands of gallons of water into the ground, which you're paying for that water, by the way. Um, and you've got to dig, you know, spend $40,000 to dig a trench and replace that pipe. And, you know, so just just. We, and then uh, one time, five o'clock in the afternoon, we actually had someone crawl up on top of the roof of the leasing office, bust out the skylight and throw Molotov cocktails into the leasing office to attempt to burn it down because they were upset because they were getting evicted because they didn't pay rent in three months, right? So we can, we've dramatically underestimated how difficult it would be to turn that property around. And then 2015 rolled along and... I don't know if you remember, but in 2015, everyone was certain a recession was coming in 2016. Right. right. I think Robert Kiyosaki even put out a book about the big 2016 crash, right? And so we're like, okay, we can probably turn this around given a little bit more time. However, 
the properties that get hit the hardest in a recession are these kind of properties. C properties and C neighborhoods get hit hardest and first if a recession comes. So if a recession comes in 2016, we could be hosed. And so we just, we made the decision to, you know, Warren Buffett's number one rule, don't lose money. Number two is C rule number one, right? Yep. So what we did is we actually sold the property two years early because we were able to get a price that allowed us to return 100% investor capital. And I think it was ended up being just a single digit return, um, annual single digit. Like I think we made distributions of five or 6% and then like a couple of percent on sale. Um, so way below our pro forma, uh, but, you know, the lessons there were, again, you know, we buy in the right areas, don't buy certain assets. Um, you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff we could unpack there. I could talk for a whole hour on that property. But, you know, that's the, that's the worst syndication that we ever did. And rather than, you know, hold on to it and say, we're going to turn this around, we decided, you know, let's just not risk losing capital. We're going to sell early. Some people won't be happy, but at least they won't have lost any money. And then we're going to move on to, to bigger and better deals. So. So that brings me to my next question, which might not be so rapid fire is, you know, you and I both know, cause we've been through a couple of these cycles in our lives, real estate is cyclical, cyclical, all, all asset prices are cyclical. You know, at some point winter is coming. I've got my little, um, I got my little, uh, uh, ice walker here from game of Thrones. Like, and I have this on my desk just to remind myself, like, don't get too high on the hog, keep debt at zero, you know, keep the savings high. Cause winter is coming at some point, you know, I don't ever want to be in 2009 again, where I was living on a couch. Cause now I got a family. I can't live on a couch and, and, and call it an, I call it an adventure. You need a bigger couch. Yeah. yeah. Much bigger couch. So, um, what, what's your plan for the next downturn, whether it's next month, next year, next year, decade they they keep printing money and the downturn doesn't come for 20 years until it's a real downturn what's the plan to weather the storm when you've got you know 3,000 units and I, I don't know what your leverage percentage is but what's the downturn plan well yeah and that's the problem with downturns is no one knows when they're actually going to show up right I mean I know people who in 2015 and 16 said all right prices are too high I'm getting out. I'm going to sit here and wait until they come back down. Yeah. Well, that's six years ago. Yeah. Right? Six, six and, years ago yeah. and a 50% increase in value on assets. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so, and it's funny that you can't quite see it because the angle, but that framed picture behind me also says winter is coming. Um, so that's something we're always keeping in mind. So number the one, the, again, the problem is, is you don't, you don't know when it's coming. Right? And like you said, it will, but you don't know when. And also, yeah, our, government lately seems to um, be unwilling to have, have any kind of economic, you know, downturn whatsoever. Like it's just, we've got to keep it up, 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 up all the time. So yeah, there's, there's kind of the, 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 uh, you know, what is that? That's the unknown, right? What kind of reaction is going to happen to any kind of downturn? But given that, the, you know, the worst thing you can do is just say, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and not do anything because especially with inflation coming, probably the best way to hedge against inflation is to own hard assets like real estate, right? So, okay, well, shoot. Well, how do I hedge against inflation, own hard assets, but then also hedge against, you know, recession or a downturn or what if prices come down? And it, it comes down to, you know, a handful of things, but one of one, the, one of the biggest, two of the biggest ones is number one, make sure you have sufficient cash flow to weather a storm. And then two, proper use of debt, matching debt with 
with, with the with the the business plan, right? So you asked about you mentioned our current portfolio. I think our current LTV is probably 35 percent. Please, that's um, that's huge. Please explain to people what you're talking about when you say LTV and thirty percent, because um, that's amazing. By the way. Um, so what that means is for every hundred million dollars of real estate, there's 35 million in debt against it is basically, basically what that means. Um, so, you know, our loan to value, that ratio is, is roughly 35% on the existing you know, properties. Now, when we buy a property, we typically go in at 70 or 75% because we do, it's called value add, meaning we're going to renovate. We're going to do some different things, bump up rents so that the idea is, is after you do that value add, you have a lower basis in the property and a higher cash flow. And that's how you get to a position of 35% overall leverage, right? So going in, we're usually 70 to 75%. Um, I see a lot of deals being done nowadays at 80%. That's a little high for my comfort level. Uh, again, I'm not, you know, it can, it can work out fine and it has been. That's not our preferences to go that high. So uh, just, just number, so I just so I make sure I understand this on this next deal you're putting together, let's say the next deal is forty million dollars. Um, you're going to raise thirty percent down, so you'll get twelve million dollars down. So now you owe twenty eight million dollars on this forty million dollar asset. And in your mind, through value adds to the property, uh, increase in rents, lowering the property, um, the the property maintenance costs, or the just the overall expenses, your goal is like, hey through the manipulation of the denominator and the numerator, getting incomes up and expenses down, we're gonna make this property intrinsically worth 50 million. And so now we have an asset that's worth 40, uh, 50 million. We bought it for 40 with 12% down. So now it's, it's we owe $28 million on a $50 million property. And now our LTV is closer to 55% instead of 75%. So it's not that you're taking extra money to pay down the loan. You're just adding value and taking the tailwind of appreciation and now all of a sudden you only owe in, in your portfolio 35 million per hundred million owned. Am, am I, am I conceptualizing yeah, this correctly? Ex exactly. So what we're doing is we're going in with what we feel like is moderate leverage, 70 to 75%. Now there's some, I know some operators that like to go into 60, 65. And if you have a low enough cost of equity, that's great. You can do that. Um, we like to go in with 70 to 75, knowing that we're going to put some work into it. And that two years later, we should have a property that's significantly that we have forced appreciation on. And then now our leverage is, is down to where, you know, a, a lower level. Uh, the other piece of it is, you know, I mentioned structure and you're right. This, this won't, won't be a rapid fire, but I'll try to make it quick. Um, so going back to that, the, the, the $50 million deal we bought, we bought in March when we, you know, that was, when we went under contract on that. It was late December, 2020. And when we applied for the loan, it was January 2021. That was a still a very uncertain environment in terms of the economy and COVID and all of that. So what we did to make sure that the structure the debt properly in case a recession or downturn came, and there's a million ways to structure the debt. This is just an example to kind of illustrate it. So we got 12-year fixed rate Fannie Mae debt, right? So we know that if interest rates go up, it is not going to affect that property for 12 years because we have, we have a fixed rate for of 3.79% for 12 years. Like it doesn't matter like what happens if our interest rate on that loan is 3.79 for 12 years. Right? So we have that also with a 12 year Fannie Mae loan, you can get what's called, you can get two supplementals and 
what the supplemental is, if you go to go to the single family world, you, you get your first mortgage, the value of your property goes up, you can go get a second mortgage or a HELOC, right? Or something like that. In the commercial world, the equivalent is a supplemental. You can go back to Fannie Mae and say, hey, the value is way up. I want to pull some cash out. And you can return it to investors. You can you know, put it on a new roof, whatever you want to do with that. So that loan allows us to do that twice. Now, our business model is to sell in six years. So here's where all that comes into play. What we, what we all, when you're buying a property, you always want to say, you know, what are the potential outcomes, good or bad? So let's say we get to six years from now. And let's just say interest rates are way up, right? Uh, if someone, if so, you know, and if someone was going to go get a, a loan, they'd have to pay six percent interest. Well, our loan is assumable, meaning that the buyer could take over our loan and they get to pay three point seven nine percent for the next six years of the remainder of that loan. So by allowing a new buyer to, to by guaranteeing that a new buyer of our property will pay no more than 3.79%, that helps um, protect the value of our property because our buyer doesn't have to come in with more expensive debt. Now, the downside of that assumption is, is well, what if the property's worth 70, $80 million? Now they have to bring a ton of equity. Well, that and that costs too, right? Here's that's where the supplemental comes in. They can use that supplemental to get up back up to 75%. So we get we get the best of both worlds. They can get full moderate leverage at 75% and take over our low interest rate of 3.79. So in a high interest rate environment, we still have a good exit. What if it goes the other way? What if interest rates somehow are way lower in six years when we want to sell? And someone's like, I don't want that loan. It's it's 3.7. I can get it for two and a half. So what that means in that situation, we go to sell is we're going to have to, we're going to have to pay off that loan. We will pay. Uh, it's called yield maintenance, but it's effectively a prepayment penalty. But if interest rates are that much lower in six years, that also means it's extremely likely that cap rates are going to be right. way lower in six years. And if cap rates are way lower, that means the value of our property is way higher than we were planning. And we'll be more than happy to pay that prepayment penalty because there'll be so much extra profit from the sale of the property, right? So in either way, we win when we want to exit in six years. Okay, well, what if we get to the point in six years where it's 2008 all over again? You know, no one's buying. You can't can't sell. You can't yeah, there's refinance. Blood, the whole there's market. blood in the streets. There's, uh, you know, yeah, property whole, values have taken a 40% hit. Yeah, exactly. Property. Let's say property values are down. Let's say the thing's worth forty million, right? Okay, fine. We're gonna we we have we have six more years. We can just wait it out on that loan. Our payment is low because it's at three point seven nine percent, right? And it's a thirty year amortization. So the worst case scenario is we just hold for another six years, and then go. So then take zoom back out. Look at U.S. real estate for the last couple hundred years. I would challenge you to find a 12-year period where commercial real estate in good market, we're not talking Detroit, we're talking, you know, growing markets, the Southeast, and find a 12-year period where the value of a well-run asset is lower at the end of 12 years than it was at the beginning of 12 years. Yep. That, in that, Especially with growing inflation, the odds of that are exceptionally low. So that's how you mitigate against the downturn. That's how you mitigate against potentially lower prices is you structure your business plan and your debt 
so that you have multiple exit strategies for almost any scenario, right? And again, the beauty, beautiful thing about real estate, you know, uh, David Osborne, a mutual friend of ours, says this a lot. Um, you know, don't wait to buy real estate; buy real estate and wait. Right? As yeah. long as you buy the real, as long as you buy the right property and you operate it well, it's the most forgiving asset on the planet. Because almost always in the United States, if you just hold it long enough, you'll be fine, and you can eventually get out of that thing with a profit. So, yeah, you know, that's a bit long-winded, but that's how you mitigate. That's that's one of the, the main ways you mitigate a potential downturn is right market, right property, right business plan, and then structure the debt so that you have those options. I love that. And um, just real quick, in your syndication, I know it's different in every single one. What's the uh, what's the minimum investment that you're looking at for an investor? If somebody's watching this and they're like, "Oh, this sounds interesting," what is what is the minimum? You know, the table stakes for an Andrew Cushman deal. Uh, these days it's usually a hundred thousand. Although anybody investing with us for the first time, uh, is, is allowed to do 50. Cool. And what is the minimum net worth income? Like what's the restriction of somebody who's thinking of investing? Do they have to be a billionaire, a millionaire? Do they have to make a certain amount of money? What's the story? Well, I don't know enough billionaires to, uh, to restrict it to just billionaires. Um, but, uh, so there's a, there's a handful of ways you can syndicate, and we won't get into the weeds, but there's basically two ways. One is 506C, which is when you advertise and solicit. And in order for an investor to invest in something like that, they have to be accredited, meaning they're either, you know, make $200,000 as an individual or $300,000 married, and their net worth is a million dollars or more, excluding primary residence, right? So that's 506C. We actually do 506B which means we don't advertise, we don't solicit. You have to have a pre-existing relationship with us. So for example, we, yeah, we do, um, as you kind of alluded to, we have a deal right now that we're working on that we're about to open up to our current investors. But if someone hears this podcast and reaches out to me and says, oh, I want to get in that, the answer will be, sorry, we're not allowed to do that, right? right? We can talk to you and, and, and get all your information and you can get added to our list for maybe the next one, um, but you can't, we can't let you in a current one. So because of that, because in order to get into one of our deals, you have to have a pre-existing relationship. Uh, we're allowed to take a limited number of what's called sophisticated investors, meaning, okay, so you're, you know, you don't make $300,000 as a, as a married couple. Uh, you don't have a net worth of a million, but you have some investable cash and you are sophisticated enough to, be able to decide whether or not this type of investment is right for you or not. Right. And that's part of the interview process as we'll, we'll, you know, is, is, you know, we're interviewing each other. So when we do the interview, you know, Scott, you asked me a bunch of questions of, have you ever lost money and what kind of deals do you do and what kind of fee, you know, you ask those questions, but then we're also asking questions to make sure that you're a good fit for the type of investment. And if not, we'll, you know, We'll let you know. Um, no, I, I got to say that's that's one of the things I really appreciated with you and why I want to do this podcast because when we started talking, you were like, hey, I just want to bring this all into focus and kind of give you some worst case scenarios. Could you lose this money? 
what are your other investments? What are and before we even talked about anything, you were like, what are your expectations on a rate of return? And when we started talking about the baseball analogy, the singles and the doubles, he's like, cool. I I immediately disqualify people that are looking for a home run because that's not that's not the methodology. And so I really appreciated that give and take in that interview. And and side note, I think it's funny that they haven't updated that accredited investor because um, I think that term came out in the seventies or eighties, and they haven't raised the income cap, even though. You know, if you cost adjusted it, it probably means you have to have a net worth or a, a income over a million and a net worth over two million. But whatever, I digress. Um, all right, so anybody making over two hundred thousand as an individual or three hundred thousand as a married couple can get on your list, and maybe at some future point you might have an investment for them. Um, I want to run one thing by you because it's timely, and we'll probably release this in a couple of weeks. So maybe it won't be as timely, or maybe it'll be the biggest story in the news. You know. Um, I was reading something that when the US economy collapsed in 2009, uh, we had about about 6% of GDP was the single family market housing market. Uh, so 6% of all the GDP in America was the housing market and the disruption to that housing market was enough to crush our economy and then almost bring down the world economy. Right now, there's a Chinese real estate company that is responsible for 20% of the GDP of China between their financing, their growth, their construction. They have something like 1,500 multi-billion dollar projects going on across China and across the globe, and they're about to default on their debt. Um, and some financial prognosticators that I talked to a lot said, hey, there's this weird domino effect that could happen uh, that would affect me in the mortgage industry where it's like, if the biggest real estate and investment company in China falls and they default on their debt, all of those banks and all those assets are gonna be looking for a home. All of a sudden, you know, US treasuries at one and a half percent or 1% or half a percent for capital, um, capital uh, preservation looks really attractive could we see in the residential side of things, you know, in a 30-year mortgage with a one in front of it, 1.99, because there's just this flood of a massive amount of money that comes into the U.S. market. It, it, have you read anything about this or is this anything that's on your radar with the collapse of this giant, giant Chinese uh, uh, property company? It's on my radar, but I'm, I'm certainly not an expert. I believe it's Evergrande or Evergrande. I'm yeah. not sure how you say it. Yeah. Um, and they're, I think they, they're, their debt's like 300 billion, um, something along those lines. So <laughs> yeah. I, I have not checked the news feed at all this morning. So who knows, who knows what the current thing is. You know, the chatter that I've heard is that the Chinese government probably won't let them default. Uh, they'll probably restructure, bail out or do something um, along those lines. Uh, who knows for sure? It's, you know, China is pretty opaque. It's, you're not ever really sure what's going on over there. Right, right. Um, so it's, it's kind of kind of hard to say. You know, and the, the perspective you just shared, that's really interesting. Um, I actually had not heard that perspective, and, and I certainly could see that. And that's, that's the thing is it gets back to, you know, oh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a temptation. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to wait until this whole thing blows over, right? Well, right. There's, there's going to be another one next month. Or, you know, there's <laughs> right. always going to be something, right? There's, you know, the market climbs a, a wall of worry. Um you know, so but that just gets back to uh, the conversation we just had a minute ago about trying to structure for all and mitigate all outcomes, right? You can't eliminate risk. Uh, you know, and the only way to completely eliminate risk is to go commit a crime, get put in jail for life, and now you've got your you've got your four walls, a roof, and three square meals a day. Like you don't have you you just you're good. You know, there's other risks, but you know you've you've got your expenses covered. Um, outside of that. 
you know, you can, you can't eliminate risk. And that, that's why you, that's why there's, that's why you get a return, right? I mean, there's, you risk capital to get a return. So when I see this all happening, uh, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting idea about it driving rates down. Uh, I could see that happening, but I could also see it being contagious and, you know, starting chain of dominoes, like, like kind of happened back in, in 2008, right? So I can yeah. kind of see it going either way. It could be a, an effect of benefit was what you described, or it could be, you know, a negative. So what do you do in a sec, in a sense, business as usual, which is evaluating the risk of all outcomes to begin with, right? So that when the, when Evergrande two pops up six from six months from now, you're like, okay, well, yeah, that's baked into our model. Like something, yeah. like, something like that could happen. Um, also China, you know, China, again, this is, this is uh, outside of my pay grade right now, but my understanding is, is China has falling asset prices and that's part of what's causing the problem because they did so much overbuilding and overdevelopment and so much state sponsored building. I mean, they have vacant cities over there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's an entirely different world than the U S where we have a verified housing shortage yep, uh, and there's just not enough supply. So. Yeah. makes sense. Um, last question. And we'll close on this. I always like to ask this is what's the question I forgot to ask the story you want to tell the thing that you're like, man, when I get interviewed, I wish people would ask this. What's the, what's the thing I forgot to ask over the last half hour about either you personally or the risk that is involved in syndication or some funny story or something you want to share about the economy. What's the, what's the question I forgot to ask? Well, the usual one is is what we I actually went over is people is that people don't ask that they should ask is what's the worst deal you've ever done, um, and we actually already talked about that. Uh, so um, yeah, a lot of people ask me is that a prop? No, it's not. It's a real surfboard. I was I, <laughs> I used it I used it on Wednesday, um, but uh, you know so you know at this point I, we've covered a lot. So I'm not sure, but uh, I'm you know, I'll answer any question that's thrown at me. So I guess I can I guess I can say that. Cool, man. And how do people get in touch with you if they want to start the exploratory process of getting on your list, investing in the deal so they can invest in future deals? Uh, how do people contact Andrew? Yeah, if you Google me, I'll come up all over the place. Um, but the easiest way is is um, our web, you know, if you Google Vantage Point Acquisitions, um, and the website is vpacq.com. vpacu.com. Yeah, ACQ, sorry. ACQ, sorry. V like, yeah, V like Vantage, P as in, you know, point, and then ACQ, short for acquisitions. Uh, there's a there's a couple of there's a couple of tabs on there for how to how to you know reach out and connect and uh, those that comes to my inbox and uh, yeah happy to uh, to have a conversation. Um, of course, I'm you know on LinkedIn and bigger pockets and all that. But if you actually really want to connect, the best way is to the website. Cool, man. And then uh, one last question. I promise it'll be the last one. Uh, you and I both lived in the communist state of California. Um, what do you What are you most looking forward to after the lockdowns, after the masks, after things normalize, after COVID? What are you most looking forward to getting back to doing? Oh, going to, I mean, I probably see two movies a year in the theater, but I'm looking forward to doing that. And then also my wife and I really used to enjoy going to the improv uh -huh. because there's a, there's a couple of improvs. And the, one of the cool things about living near LA is all the big name comedians go to the local improvs to test out their new material before they do their Netflix special. Yep. Right. 
So, like, we've seen um, uh, Gabriel Iglesias. Like, we're going to see uh, – actually, we're going to go see Jay Leno in a couple of months. Like, all the big, big-name guys – We'll be sitting ten feet from them in a in an intimate little environment at the improv. Well, they t- and they they will literally walk out with their notes and be like, "Okay, guys, this is new material. Um, testing it out." And like they're so like just candid and real. It's awesome. And then of course we'll see the Netflix special four months later and be like, "Hey, we heard all this." Yeah. Um. So I, we're, I'm look, looking forward to to being able to do more of that again and just go go to the improv, relax, not worry about everything, and uh, and. Enjoyed one of the benefits of living in this area. So totally, I used to go to the Ice House a lot when I was living in Pasadena before we moved up to Valencia. And uh, same thing, I saw Joe Rogan like a dozen times in three yep. months when he was working on new material, and uh, it, it was just crazy. Because to your point, he would walk up and he'd be like, "Hey, man, I think this one is dog shit, but let me try it out." <laughs> and uh, well, yeah, and I've even had that they'll do a joke and like, "Okay, that didn't work." They're like, all right. I'm actually going to try another version on you guys, okay? So just yeah. give me a second. And they and they, they literally would just tell the same joke over, and they'd be like, is that better? You know, like, <laughs> like, this is cool. I mean, it is really cool to see masters of their craft. I, like, okay, they're real people. Like, they struggle with putting it together, too, just like just like you and I do with everything. Like the self-doubt, oh, should I be buying this deal or should I not? Did I miss something, you know? Um, I it's definitely a bit of a rabbit trail, but yeah, that it's I look looking forward to that again. And again, it's it's cool to see people that are way up here, like hey, they're having similar struggles that that we do, you know? So. Yeah. Well, Andrew, man, I really appreciate you being on. I'm looking forward to you open up the round on this uh, next deal because I will be a client and a friend. And um, yeah, at some point in the future, we'll have to do this again in person. All right, sounds good, man. Good talking to you. All right, talk soon. All right, take care. Bye.